This is how it's going to start. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sunset Stream, land of the uh, Jamaican queen, downtown Big Brown, double up, smash it around. Sunset Glint, big hit, extra tent here on the Wishbone Frenzy. Haven't heard that name in a long time, have we? This is it, Live to Tape, also known as Live A to Tape. Also known as Live to Tap, the uh, special executive buffet that's meant for executives only. That's why it's called that name. But really, you know, you're just you're swooning and slipping and sliding in Daddy's big red truck. Thanks for being here. This is the podcast of the name I just have been saying. Here you are. I hope everything's great with you. Hope you're having a, just a fantastic holiday season. I mean, what is the holiday season? I guess it's just the time when you when you mess around, right? It's when you can kind of like uh, shouldn't it? I mean, everyone says this all the time, especially kids. Why can't it be Christmas all year round? Shouldn't we always be living in the Christmas way? Not even the Christmas way. I mean, just like. Holiday style, holiday style, lifestyle. Let's make it happen. Let's be last day of Scrooge. Last day of Scrooge, holiday lifestyle. Okay, uh, what do we have for you here today? Great podcast, outstanding. If you want extra stuff, it's patreon.com slash live to tape. That's patreon.com slash live to tape. Also, I'm in New York City for a little bit longer. If you want to come see some shows, I'm trying to, I have, I have, well, if it's, if it's a thing that's big and cool and fun, I will post about it. Otherwise, you might just catch me randomly at some different places and stuff like that. That's all I've got for right now because I'm still working in the, uh, working in the, uh, the, the zone here. The uh, big little special TV workshop. Okay, let's get down to the meat here. Another classic, great, super special, fun, interesting, thrilling, scintillating podcast episode for you here today. My guest is... An amazingly talented, knowledgeable man. He works in the field. Well, he does uh, works in multiple fields, but I know him from the community garden and being an expert in. Gosh, what would you even call it? I would say I want to say soils, but the idea of uh, regenerative farming and just all the stuff that has to do with what goes in the ground and the dirt and everything. It's, he's an incredibly smart and thrillingly interesting man. Welcome him here to Live to Tape. It's Cray Hample. Yeah, Cray, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks, Johnny, for having me. It's, yeah. uh, we'll see what happens here. <laughs> I was just watching some of your one of your TED Talks, and I'm just mm. like very aware of my garbage now <laughs> from oh, hearing yeah. that stuff. So uh, how did you get started? So you, you consider yourself an ecologist or a naturalist, or what is it? 
What do you consider? Yeah, kind of a jack of all trades. Um, right. I had some really, in, uh, I had some great inspirational teachers in the past, mm -hmm. and I think one of the um, one of the big turning points in my life was meeting a woman named Enda Mills. This was okay. back in 1989. Her father Enos Mills was a great naturalist, and he was instrumental in starting Rocky Mountain National Park. Okay. And he took uh, people from. You know, the delegates from Washington, D.C., you know, the people that uh, had to do with public lands and national lands, and took them on hikes. He was a photographer, a writer. But his daughter, Enda, we just happened to meet her one day walking down a county road outside of Estes Park, Colorado. How long ago was this? This is 1989. So okay. this is 30, what was this? Uh, About 30 33, yeah, 33, 32, 33 years ago. And... Um, I swear my DNA just reversed the, you know, the helix just turned the other way. Really? And she came out with this just big smile. We had been walking down this county road. We uh, saw a little sign that says Enos Mills Cabin. Mm -hmm. We'd never heard of it. So we said, let's go see what that's about. We walk in. There's this little driveway and a, and a gravel parking lot mm -hmm. big enough for about six cars and uh, a sign that said, honk, I'll come out. <laughs> so we, we were honking like geese, and Enda comes out. She's hobbling out. You know, she's probably in her 70s at this point, and uh, she just had this huge grin on her face, and she spent the next two hours talking about her father and the Rocky Mountains and establishing parks and, you know, just the adoration of nature. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of floored by this, you know. I it just it almost tears me up thinking about her um, because I went back to Los Angeles. I'd been really sick that year with chronic fatigue, and I came back to Los Angeles and I just visited everyone that I knew that had anything to do with the environment. I said, "I'm just looking for something to do here, right. you know, something that makes a difference." And everyone kind of pointed to tree people. Okay, they were hiring up. Right because they had just gotten a big contract with the city of Los Angeles um, to do recycling education in schools. So I threw my name in the hat. They hired me up um, over the next you know, few years. I worked with them. They had an amazing library from writings all over the world. People had been in the Peace Corps, people had traveled, people that, you know, entomologists, um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, ethnobotanists, uh, you know, alternative energy folks, um, mm -hmm. all sorts of things, trees, tree canopies, urban forestry, all those things, watershed, water harvesting. They, they had hosted one of the first permaculture trainings on the West Coast at Tree People in oh, the wow. late 70s, early 80s. I guess it was late 70s. And I was there, you know, 10, oh, 10 12 years later after this happened. But there, were, there was a whole circle of people that kind of ran through tree people that were, you know, all about urban forestries, mm -hmm. you know, urban ecology, and, and then we were out in the schools every day. We, our staff, our ed staff, reached, you know, maybe 100, 120,000 kids a year in school programs. So it was a, you know, just a huge explosion for me to kind of turn this whole direction. I'd been working um, in props. I was a carpenter. I was, you know, uh, you know, building little models, odds and ends for advertising and film, that kind of thing. Right. And uh, this just became a whole new, you know, enterprise for me. It's kind but of I, endless, isn't it? Because that, the, yeah, all that stuff is. There's, there's no, there's so much you can do in that space because, 
I mean, the more I learn about trees, the more I realize I don't know anything about trees. There's, it's such a, uh, such a vast... Yeah. Uh, there's so much information. So much, they, do, yeah. they do so much. And, you know, once you start studying the living, breathing world, you realize it's deep space right here on the planet. Yeah. You know, we, we just had all these uh, telescope images come back from deep space, you know, just a few weeks back. And uh, the explanation was kind of like pinch your fingers together, open them up like a 32nd of an inch, you know, point it toward the sky, you know, looking through it with your eye. And that's about the image that we've got mm -hmm. of, you know, of deep space. <clears throat> And when you start looking at soil and the interactions and how these microbes are just like a swap meet of genetics that turn off and on, depending on the conditions, it's just phenomenal. And so, you know, I'm just like a little kid. I just can't get enough of it. I just, you know, the more I learn, the, more, the, the less I seem to know. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's just humbling to see the expanse of life on this planet and how complex it really is and uh, so that was you know that was kind of my start and then through the 90s I, I left tree people I started working on my own we did a lot of uh, composting workshops all over Southern California and my interest became more soils um, so that's what I'm that's what I'm really interested in is that yeah the compost stuff to me is so incredibly fascinating because it doesn't you can you can mess it up and you can restart it you can do it all year round, doesn't matter what the weather is. It's the kind of thing, it's almost like you're gardening soil, and anyone can do it anywhere, anytime. So I think there's like, I think there needs to be a greater emphasis on soil, like composting, as opposed to, I mean, gardening is obviously great, and everyone wants to grow their tomatoes and stuff, everyone wants to do that. But the idea, if you can compost, I feel like if you can do that right, the gardening stuff is almost easy compared to. Yeah, yeah. There's a, um, you know, the decomposition is always in equilibrium with, with growth. Right, yeah. And if you go into any forest, you know, you, you're walking on, on the um, nutrients that were once accumulated. Mm -hmm. And that soil is just, a, it's the biggest factory of nutrient processing. I mean, it's the biggest commercial kitchen on earth. And uh, yeah. it, it's, it's really phenomenal. I mean, the way that we do composting in cities, it's not always in a line with what plants need. So compost, you know, it has its own chemistry, shape, say, balances, you know, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, all the, all the, uh, um, uh, the standards. Yeah, the, the standards, but then the, but also the micronutrients, you know, all of those are in different proportions. Our food waste, you know, can have a lot of salts in it. Manures yeah. can have a lot of salts in them. And in the natural world, that's all spread out. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, you get these huge, let's just take a river, for instance, that had huge migrations of ocean fish in it, you know, salmon coming upstream. They go into these headwaters, and then they get picked up by the bear, the, you know, the eagles, the the birds, and they just poop this stuff everywhere. It's like a, just a big manure spreader, right. right? And all these ocean minerals come up, and the, f the forests are actually, you know, all becoming anemic because of our dam systems. Really? Absolutely. So anemic means, without, <clears throat> I mean, anemic in the body means not enough iron, right? Well, or yeah, and, you know, it's not just iron, but it's nutrients that would normally have gone upstream from the ocean. There were just billions of tons of fish going up these mm -hmm. rivers, 
they've now been cut off. Okay, so anemic in the sense where they don't have a lot of minerals. They have a lot of... Yeah, lot anemic of in, in the, I'll say the, you know, sort of in a general sense, mm -hmm. anemia, um, what I'm saying is the, the nutrients just aren't coming back from the ocean. Okay. They're floating downstream with water and rain, right. but they're not being replenished by the, by the great migrations of fish that used okay. to go upstream. And so we're seeing a lot of this, you know, all these different cycles that we're just starting to understand that have been, you know, on the surface of the planet and underneath the soil for, you know, just millennia. I mean, mm -hmm. just millions of years that this has taken to evolve to this point. And we're just starting to understand the genetics. So it's, it's super complex. I, I, you know, I just, I'm more in awe of it than anything else. And my knowledge, I think, is just superficial compared to a lot of people. Um, but that's what people, I talk about this a lot in the podcast. Anyone I have on who says that always means that they know, they know a lot more than they say. What's that? I always forget the name of it. There's a name of it. It's called the, is it, is it the Dunning-Kruger effect? The thing where someone says, oh, I just dabble in guitar means you kick ass at guitar. And someone who's <laughs> like, I'm actually a pretty great guitarist. It means, well, you're not that great. You just don't know how, you don't know how bad you are because you don't, you're not good enough to know. But people who are really knowledgeable are always like, I mean, that's how I feel with gardening for sure. The more I do it, the more I realize I don't know a goddamn thing, yeah. but I'm pretty good at a couple things. I kind of have a good feel sometimes for certain plants. I can kind of tell. It's that thing where you feel like uh, there's a lot of stuff in, in this world, I think, in the natural world where you can't really explain it. You, you kind of ha It's almost like a sense where you, you, you feel something out as opposed to being, okay, this is how you grow a plant. You add 30 milligrams of this and that. When everything is different. Everything, every climate, every little space in the world is a different amount of sun, different amount of wind, different amount of everything. And so there's no like right way to do anything because it's all it's so subject to variables so much. Yeah, I, you know, I was, a, I was a child of the 50s. I was born, you know, about 10 years after World War II. So I was born in 1954. There were, you know, like 3 billion people on the planet. And, and uh, now there's close to eight. But I remember, you know, being in grade school where we were watching these 16 millimeter films on a projector in the, you know, in the aisleway of the classroom. Where in the country was this? This is in the Midwest. I grew up in Michigan. Okay. So I'm from Minnesota. So we have a... Yeah. There's definitely something there. So, um, uh, but, you know, these just kind of square jawed narrators uh, telling us about how great uh, industry and progress was. Right. And so, you know, there were bridges being built, dams being built, uh, you know, huge tractors, you know, plowing fields and uh, airplanes flying over full of pesticides. And, you know, all that stuff was just glorified um, in that time period. And it went on for decades and it's still being glorified to a certain degree, you know, within certain circles. But oh, yeah. What's popping out now are all the problems of this, you know, this, you know, say Decades 75 year experiment mm -hmm. in uh, toxics and machinery on land. And uh, so what we're, you know, what's really exciting now are, are groups that are popularizing this regenerative style of food, um, soils. Just the other night I was at a, an event uh, for LA Compost and uh, they've been running all these small hubs at farmers markets, community so LA gardens. Compost, this is the <clears throat> sanitation of Los Angeles sanitation and this is their compost operation or is this separate? It's separate. It's actually a nonprofit really? and their, their byline is, you know, um, 
you know, soils and people. Okay. And they're really looking at the cultural piece of regeneration as much as they are the soil. And so it's, it's really a, a wonderful combination. Michael Martinez, who started this, I just consider him a very reverent human being. And uh, he brings so much to it in terms of the culture of regeneration. So he runs LA Compost. Yeah. Got and it. I think they've got you know, somewhere around 15 or 20 uh, people working with them now, you know, some full and some part-time. But they're running all these collection uh, programs and then composting hubs. Okay. So it's more localized. Yeah, so you can get it to where it doesn't have to be trucked. Right. Someplace. You can keep it in a- yeah, they've stayed away from the uh, kind of locomotive scale of, um, uh, you know, this just these huge industrial composting facilities that, you know, are very questionable about how much benefit we're really getting out of really? them. Really? How's that? What is that? Because I don't know that much about that. I, as far as I know, industrial compost means you can, like, you can break down some pretty big things. You can break down stuff that, like, you maybe couldn't at home, like, like uh, animal products or oil or things like that. Like, Yeah. Well, actually, the scale isn't that much of a benefit. What it really means is um, we've got huge trucks. We've got big distances. Okay. And in these commercial composting facilities, I think the average is that that material is touched and moved about 17 times before it hits the ground again. Wow. So in, I'm familiar with Burbank because it, you know, I worked at the Recycle Center there for years and went through all the numbers. And Burbank, you know, with 107,000, 108,000 people, generated about 18 to 20,000 tons of yard clippings per year. Mm-hmm. And that was street trees. That was, um, you know, some street sweepings with the leaves and things like that. But mostly it was residential yeah. yard clippings. And most of that was actually grass. Okay. So grass is one of the biggest irrigated crops in America. It's yeah. just, you know, it's this huge impact, especially in the Southwest where we don't have a lot of water for grass. But the the industrial composting, um, you know, kind of the, the snapshot of that is that we were hauling it um, – about 95 miles to a composting facility. That was like four to six semi-trucks a day. Yeah, it's a lot. Big tractor trailers. <clears throat> and uh, had to go over the you know mountain range and then down into the Central Valley. Um, and you have to, you, first of all, you have to clean it. That means running it over a sorting line, usually with people picking all the trash out of it because it's, it's oh, all it's, mixed up with street yeah. trash bags of garbage, you know, all anything you can imagine that gets thrown away is in the is in the compost. Mm-hmm. And then from there it goes into um, they might do some separation there too, if, you know, pulling some things aside that need to be uh, ground or something like that. But then it goes through grinders, you know, it goes through screening, grinding, um, piling, mix, you know, they got to mix it, pile it, um, aerate it. So some aeration is done just with huge machines that go through and stir the big, what they call windrows. Okay. They're just big piles that are maybe, you know, 8 to 12 feet high and maybe, you know, 10 to 15 feet wide, that kind of thing, depending on the size of the machines. It's just like a huge rototiller that goes through these piles and reshapes them. It's just like a, you know, almost like an airport runway of these things. Do they add anything? Do they add any kind of water? It takes a lot of water, yeah, because you're evaporating water all the time. Um, is that like special water? They, they dechlorinated it all? They no, you can just use, you don't need 
fancy water for okay. that. I mean, you could use reclaimed water or something if you have it nearby, right. but most of it's well water, you know, that kind of thing. But there's, there's enough bacteria just in there to do all the, all yeah. the breakdown? Yeah, you, don't, you really don't have to inoculate it with anything. Okay. It just goes. But you have to turn it. You know, uh, I think it's, uh, oh, shoot, I'm forgetting the specifics, but it's about three or four times in the first, you know, number of days mm -hmm. uh, to meet some of the health code standards. Oh, because it has to get, get hot up, enough. Yeah. Has, every surface has to get a certain temperature to kill bad right. stuff. You got to get it over uh, pasteurization temperatures. Which is 165? 130, okay. I think it's 135, somewhere. I don't know where I've there. got that number. Just <laughs> but yeah, most compost is running about 160, something okay. like that. You know, one, somewhere between 130, 160. If you don't turn it, it can go even higher than that. And that's when yeah. you start getting fire problems and right. smoldering and all sorts of things. But you got to go through all this uh, turning, um, you know, and then you put it into piles and let it cure for a while. After all the biology has kind of slowed down, the first flash of nutrients is burned off, you have to pile it, kind of let it sit for a while so it uh, cures, basically. And then you can start, then you usually screen it in the final okay. round again. So you get, it, you get your fines, that would go to something like potting mixes, your coarser materials might go back in the mix as inoculant, or they might um, go out to fuel, they might go... Um, fuel like to be burned? Yeah, to be burned. Like biomass? Uh-huh, and some of it right off the front end uh, goes to that too, it just okay. depends um, where the markets are. If fuel is kind of hungry for, and the price goes up, mm -hmm. they might ship more of it that way. Or if it's lumber, you know, pallets and things like that that are getting ground up, yeah. that usually goes to fuel. Um, so it just depends. It just depends on where the markets are. But by the time that stuff hits a farm or a nursery or a bag that goes into your home garden, mm -hmm. it's been moved probably 17 times by all this heavy equipment. So the emissions are enormous. If you do that at home, you throw it in your backyard compost pile, if you mulch grass clippings, you know, just drop them, right. grass cycling is what it's been called, and you take uh, your prunings and you just chop them up into pieces and you drop them as mulch in your yard, right. you've saved all of that greenhouse gas, all those emissions, all the trucking, the, the heavy equipment. And you're putting it back into your own garden, so it's still Putting it, it right back, it yeah, it. as yeah. close as you can get it. And, you know, if we were really doing this right, I think we'd be franchising not just waste companies, but gardeners. Because gardeners could be zero waste gardeners and mm -hmm. they could go up and, you know, let, let's imagine that a gardener is now given a franchise of four or five blocks of a city right. with, let's say, you know, 500 houses or, you know, just making up a number. And now they could almost walk down the street rather than drive their car or truck, you know, mm -hmm. across town to have all these different routes around all these different places. They'd get to know all the neighbors. Um, if one person is taking down a hedge and they've just got a ton of stuff, maybe the city provides a chipping service right. on call. That's the big thing. It's breaking the stuff down. That's the big material. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if you have a base of mulch, if you have, say, kind of a mulch pit in your yard, you can pull the fine mulch back, throw the coarse stuff down, 
and cover it up and you can get the aesthetic that you want. All right. you do is create clean borders and you can get away with anything in the middle. Right, right, yeah, I just And uh, you can have that curbside aesthetic, you can make it look gorgeous and it can be a little bit more naturalized rather than kind of the gold-plated Las Vegas look. <laughs> um, and you'll probably get a lot more, you'll get a lot more diversity in the soil, you'll get water holding capacity um, you get nutrient release, you get all these benefits, and you get a longer glide time because that water holding capacity in the soil is going to keep your plants perked up. So glide time meaning be time between watering? Yeah, between waterings. Okay. So if you, can, you know, if you can accumulate water, and all these design things merge together, if you stack up all the benefits you can from rainwater off your roof going into, you know, sort of a rain garden, a swale, um, a hugel, which, you know, hugel, hugel. culture. Yeah. A hugel culture with the, with the logs under the ground. I've done that yeah. a couple times. Right? Yeah. Take big logs and bury them. The term comes out of Germany, and it's, uh, it's just a description of mounded culture where you, you trench in, you create kind of a beaver dam of organics, mm -hmm. you know, just sticks and, and logs and things like that, chips. And... Uh, Kind of cover it up um, and plant on top of it. Yeah, it's worked great for me. I yeah. planted a bunch of stuff. I planted like an olive tree on top of them, one of them. All the stuff in the front yard, I plant all the uh, perennial stuff I planted. I did that, and I put it on top of these logs from the trimmings and the trees in the back. Yeah. <laughs> so it yeah. worked out pretty well. And it's amazing how little you have to have hauled away when you do those things. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think landscape like so many aesthetics are just tripping us up because we hold on to these original experiences that we have you know we have these romantic notions of rolling in the grass as oh, a yeah. kid or you know growing up in some of the um subdivisions i mean for me it was you know 1950s style where um homes were built with lawns in the front and kind of two shrubs on either side of the front door uh -huh. And that was the way you could sell a home really cheap, you know, for a yeah. few bucks worth of grass seed and a couple of plants. Um, and that became sort of the, you know, sort of the accepted curbside aesthetic. That's yeah. changed a lot, but not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. There's still, there's people in our neighborhood in Burbank who just put in a brand new front lawn. Oh, they spent yeah. tons of money. Right. They put in, I thought they were going to do like a desert scape, but they Next thing I know, I see him taking sod out of this, out of this, uh, this, um, you know, truck. truck and there, yeah. there was a whole company doing it. Talked to my neighbor today. He was, he was like, it seems like they're just thumbing their nose at the idea that there's, there's a drought, or even, not even, even if there wasn't a drought, it's still just so ludicrous to have that type of lush greenery in the front. It's so ridiculous that it's also because you got these native plants next to it, which that is even, that's even more absurd because you've got these plants that. They do great without much water next to this material that loves water. It doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. They also have like a like a fountain in front. It's this thing where it's almost like a mansionization of something where you're trying to create this this lush sort of mansion like property. But your house is like like a a tenth of an acre plot. This is not a this is not a mansion. This is a regular regular you know, single-family dwelling, <laughs> but you're trying to make it, like, have these these weird little pathways and stuff. It's, like, just... That's so ridiculous. It's so, it's so like, uh, unaware. It feels like it's a, a lack of... A sheer lack of awareness that people have 
and I, it's hard to like be too angry at them because it's just they just kind of are they don't realize they're not thinking about it you're not there's no consideration yeah yeah i know that um uh you know i'm trying to think of the uh i'm going blank on the cover anyway this yeah this whole thing about um aesthetics we we want our exteriors to look like our interiors almost <laughs> Especially in California, it's different. Yeah, well, the- yeah, I, I even grew up in a in a Dutch community, and I can't believe how manicured their yards were. Everything was just perfect, you know? Every flower, there were no brown leaves on them. Everything look, looked vacuumed. Mm-hmm. It was all, in those days, it was all natural material. We didn't have fake grass and, you know, plastics and things like that. But it, everything was just extremely, you know, well-kept. Mm-hmm. And, um, but you can have... Th- you can actually have a great, you know, aesthetic lines and shapes and, um, you know, all the things that go into a great art piece. You can have that in your front or backyard, but you can use materials, plant materials, um, that just know how to live in drought. It's yeah. phenomenal how many things will live in dust. It's crazy. It's also funny to me that I've, I've learned just the last few years is how seasonal so many of these plants are that you just cannot grow them on the off season. And when they want to grow, you just can't stop them. There's nothing, they right. don't care if they have water or don't have water. They're just going to go because they, this is their time to, time to shine. And this is the environment that they like to live in. Yeah. But then conversely, you have stuff that people try to grow. It's just not meant to grow in certain environments. And it's just not going to go. There's nothing you can do. You can coax it all you want. But it's really never going to be that successful, and you're spending so much, you're putting so much good after something that you're not going to get anything out of it. There's not going to be a return on it. Yeah, this uh, this whole thing about you know genetics and plants um, is it's never ending. I mean, I'm, I'm just fascinated. Like just what you're describing here, um, every plant has a a trigger, you know, triggers in it to light, mm-hmm. and when you know, I've noticed that in the wintertime, as soon as we swing around the uh, winter solstice, December 21st, within two weeks, buds are it's starting. It's crazy. Buds right away. are starting to mm-hmm. wake up. Yeah. And they know, like, within a week when light is changing. It's so funny to me. Like, I see, like, the, the wisteria. Yeah. It's, like, cold as hell. It's the middle of January. And they see the little buds coming out of the wisteria. It's like, how does it know that? Yeah. It's so funny. I mean, we're only talking about a few minutes a day, you know, or, or a few minutes per week of daylight change. Tiny amount of the change. Small little increments. And, you know, even uh, germination of seeds, too. Farmers have found that if they, if they uh, cultivate a field at night, when the seeds don't get that flash of light, when mm-hmm. the plow goes through and it turns the soil over, that little flash of light, there are photoreceptors on seeds. Wow. And if they cover the plow during the day, or if they plow at night, they get far fewer weeds than if they do it in the daytime when these seeds are tilled or turned, you know, in the daylight. It's, I mean, all these little things that we just can't imagine to be true are absolutely true. Yeah. And, you know, this might be, um, if you go back and you look at, I always think of North America as this great Serengeti of buffalo. You know, numbers have, I've seen different numbers of, you know, 75 million buffalo to 125 million. 
going from Mexico all the way up to Canada. Right. And, uh, you know, if you think of that many animals, that many hooves, you know, <laughs> stomping into the ground, you, you're talking about trillions of hoof marks every right. year going up and down the plains of North America. And, um, you know, the number of seeds, and they're, you know, they're eating seeds, they're pooping seeds, mm -hmm. they're, you know, they're just aerating the soil. And the way that they grazed is now being used in farms in rotational grazings. Okay, because is it is it because it's uh, a browse, not a graze? Is that a, is that what they call it? It's almost remember. like a pulse. So oh, if you that? think of how a herd moves, you know they would they would move to a nice grassy area, and then you know after a few hours, here come the wolves, and they're kind of sneaking around on the grass, and they're you know they jump out, and then everyone runs away again. Okay. And that tight grazing pattern where the where the herd stays together, sort of for protection and they graze kind of quickly in one area, but then move on, what they're finding is that that creates pulses in the grass growth. And it actually um, accelerates grass growth because of what they're doing. They're peeing and pooping. They're aerating. Mm -hmm. They're chopping the top of the grass off, which makes the root um, shrink and decompose. That decompose that decomposing grass fuels the other releases nutrients. Right. And so the grass that's remaining shoots up even faster. Oh, wow. So farmers have dug into these cycles, and what they do now is they create these little paddocks, which are sections of pasture. They used to just open up huge pastures. It's like a moving pasture. They have a fence that moves, right? Right. Okay. Right. So you section off your pasture, you know, maybe you've had, you know, let's just say you had 100 acres before and everything just roamed around wherever it wanted to. You break that up now into you know, five acre sections or something, or, you know, even one acre sections if it's a small farm. Mm -hmm. And you let your, you know, you let your grazers use that for a day or two or whatever it is, and you move them on to the next one. And then their manure is sitting there. Now the flies, the flies come in within, you know, <laughs> seconds, three minutes, yeah. yeah, 30 seconds. And they're laying eggs all over the place. The dung beetles are doing their work. There's hundreds of different dung beetles mm -hmm. in North America. And uh, so the larvae start to hatch. And some farmers that have, you know, chickens or, you know, uh, other birds, other fowl, they'll put those in uh, maybe 10 days later. Okay. And they'll, they'll scratch and kick the manure all over the place and eat the larvae. Right. And uh, then they move the chickens just, you know, a week, week and a half behind the bigger uh, grazers. Oh, wow. To, so they have a uh, whole system. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing. So people are learning how to tune these natural cycles, and they can actually reduce some of the flies around the, you know, yeah. around the cows or sheep or, you know, goats, whatever it is. Right. Um, just by running birds through later. Um, wow. So, you know, these are all natural phenomena. We're, mm -hmm. we're learning how to do it in um, kind of a commercial pattern. It wouldn't be a natural pattern because if it were, we'd, the birds would just be all over the place anyway. Yeah. You know? um, so you'd have all these successions of, of you know, big animals, small animals, um, you know, the... Um, the ruminants first? Ruminants first, yeah. And then... Um, the predators too, mm -hmm. you know, they'd be out there doing their thing, kind of keeping the herds um, healthy because, you know, the weaker ones would be eaten. Um, 
and all these other things would be you know just moving through the cycles yeah so this is I mean this has been the exciting thing about um, organic farming you know started out with well it was a, I mean I, I shouldn't say it started out with one methodology it wasn't it was just like a lot of traditional methodologies coming from all over the world that sort of settled I'll call you know here in the United States maybe um, but Rodell was a big influence they did all the organic okay. uh, gardening magazines and they they published a lot they've also done a lot of research over the last 40 50 years and uh, so they were always kind of ahead of the pack on uh, getting information out there and then about I don't know 20 30 years ago um, what was it? The Sustainable Agriculture Research, uh, SARE, S-A-R-E, I forget what the last word was. Um, they were part of U.S. Department of Agriculture. Okay, so they're part of the, they were yeah. supported by the USDA. Yeah, and so they started bringing in a lot of this thinking of organic agriculture. Um, and it, you know, I'd say around, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, this stuff started building up again. These were all traditional farming yeah. things that happened, I'll just say, you know, kind of pre-industrialization, pre-chemicals, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. We didn't have the genetic understanding in those days, so they were, you know, they were spraying really terrible stuff. I mean... <laughs> when, did that, when did that start? That's what I wanted to ask you. So in terms of, like, farming now, we think about, there's obviously tons of industrial farm, farming happening, but we're very aware of organic practices. And I've always thought that, is it tr true to some extent that when people were uh, growing food and selling it, like in a, the food, the vegetables you get in a grocery store, let's just say the 50s, would they be almost equivalent to something you get now that's organic because of just how that's things have changed? That's a good question. I mean, uh, I think. I'm trying maybe maybe th even better than. Yeah, organic I'm trying to think when, when DDT hit the market, and I think it was probably right around World War II. They were using some pretty bad stuff. I mean, arsenic was used as an insecticide. Really? That's, that's all sorts that a of bear lead product compounds, mercury compounds. You know, were were in common use. This is all in the fifties, you say, or started around then? Well, you know, I I can't put an exact date on. It. I don't know right. the history of this very well, honestly. But um, what did come out of World War II is we had a lot of munitions companies that used uh, nitrogen compounds to build explosives. Okay. So TNT was a, you know, tri-nitrogen, I forget what it is, it's, but it's a, it's a highly charged nitrogen compound. Right. And a lot of the explosives had a lot of nitrates in them. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was a kid, we used to grind charcoal, put saltpeter in it and sulfur and try to make uh, gunpowder or mm -hmm. something. And saltpeter is like a nitrogen compound. Yeah, can't you get, scrape it off the bottom of like a cow patty or something like that? I remember reading about yeah, that as a kid actually, trying to do the same thing, trying yeah, to get some saltpeter naturally. You can naturally. take urine and uh, you can get nitrates out of it. Um, I don't know the process. But what they learned in creating all these, um, all these explosives was that, you know, they had an industrial process for it. So right. they could take atmospheric nitrogen, they used uh, uh, natural gas and... It's a real energy-intensive process, mm -hmm. but you can refine nitrates. And you know, if we go to the garden center, buy some fertilizer, usually it's you know three, ten, three percent, ten percent nitrogen, something like that. Maybe something really hot is up there in the teens. But if you go to an 
in, into industrial farming, some of these things are up in the 40% right. nitrogen. Like ammonium, sulfur. ammonium, yeah, nitrate or something, or sodium nitrate. That's or, the stuff you see in the fields, like in the tanks, right? Yeah, yeah. But that stuff is mine, isn't it? Or it's something. It's uh, well, I yeah, no, I don't think so. I mean, there are natural minerals that are high right. in nitrates, but um, when you get into these liquid nitrogens and so on that are yeah. sprayed in or or um, uh, disked in. Um, it's really potent stuff. So you're saying that they, when they learned making these munitions, they learned about this uh, nitrogen, like sequestering or getting grabbing the nitrogen. And there was such a surplus after the war. Okay. They had built out all these factories. They were looking for you know um, markets mm -hmm. to keep these things going. They invested a lot of money. Probably it was probably public funds. But, right. Um, but anyway, you got these huge uh, companies that were built from that bounce of World War right, II. Right, right. Um, and that's how you get, you know, I don't know, I mean, Monsanto went in, you know, into all the GMO stuff mm -hmm. and all the Roundup and all that stuff, and Bayer now owns them. and Cargill. Cargill, mm-hmm, all those. So, you know, along with these fertilizers came all the herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, um, all these things that were just destroying the diversity in soils. Right. And not only not only in soils, but all of our pollinators too. Mm -hmm. We're finding more and more uh, about not only not only the pesticides that are you know targeted to you know insects that eat plants, for instance, but it's also herbicides are knocking them out mm -hmm. and fungicides. Oh, they're wow. all weakening immune systems of these insects mm -hmm. and their navigational capacities, you know, they're just their overall vitality and, uh, and their capacity to migrate and, you know, reproduce and do all those kinds of things. So, you know, it, it's so complex. And when you get into these tiny little um, chemical equations of how a cell works or how it reproduces or, um, you know, how how reproduction, you know, the organs of reproduction work, or how they express, you know, so male, female, all those things. Yeah, it's just crazy. It's just so crazy is it complicated. getting better, you think, or worse? Or it's getting worse. It's getting worse. It's actually getting worse. Even, even though, though we're so aware of it now? And always, even though we're so aware of it, what's happened is um, these insecticides, you know, just say pound for pound, mm -hmm. they are so much more deadly now than they wow. used to be. And, you know, the claims, of course, by the manufacturers are very exaggerated on the side of safety. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no problem here. People are not getting Hodgkin's disease. You know, uh, we, we don't see any of this stuff. But I'll tell you, you know, the people that I've listened to who have done research, who are following these um, issues very closely, I don't know how they... I don't know how they sleep at night. Because it's just the the information is so devastating. It's just so. It's just so depressing to hear how many ways we have killed off life forms on Earth. Yeah, it's pretty. I remember <clears throat> reading this book um, a year or two ago. The one uh, I think it's a summer um, Empire of the Summer Moon. It's about the mm. the Comanche, the last Comanche chief in North America. And how they just talk, a big part of the book is just talking about the landscape yeah. in that area of the yeah. country, like Texas, Colorado, uh, Oklahoma, that area. Right. And how back before the Western expansion, 
there was just the amount of life out there was just unbelievably just incredibly lush like the stuff that Lewis and Clark encountered yeah, yeah. they saw these massive massive planes of you saw you would wouldn't be that strange to see oh you 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 stumble upon half a million birds right. all feeding in the same area you can see everything as far as i can see you see birds and all this stuff is now completely gone all these these ecosystems in this area they're all completely 100% gone i remember reading that thinking like this is just so it's almost laughable because it's so like we really just destroyed all of this it's all we've killed off every item that's living in the area it's just totally gone now it's so incredible to think that the ecosystem it's not about getting back to it because you can't it's it's never going to go back unless there's some sort of a massive human die-off suddenly and everything is allowed to flourish for hundreds of years it's now it's just now it's just different <laughs> it's like that mm-hmm. old mm-hmm. uh george carlin joke like plastic's not going anywhere. Like pl- now the earth, it's just earth plus plastic. <laughs> it's yeah. like this thing where right. it's just a new reality. Yeah. And it's, yeah. there's nothing, it's hard to even, to even look at it. When you look at the raw numbers of it, it's crazy to think that, because it's, there doesn't seem like there's ever going to be, it's not possible for it to, to go back to how it was unless there's just a, a crazy cataclysmic event. Yeah. <laughs> It, it, it's true, and I, you know, we worship the wrong, we, we, we work, worship on the wrong platform, you know. Um, this industrialization has really smothered, smothered life and yeah. the diversity. And, you know, the, diver- the wonderful thing about diversity is that it fills all the holes. You know, everything that needs to get done will get done. And, uh, you know, when you start creating huge gaps in that, you, you just start losing the the foundation that's stable. Everything beca- starts becoming unstable. It's so like you, that's, you create problems because these things. I always think about like the jellyfish. How the oceans, if, the, if there's massive acidification, you have these huge jellyfish blooms because the only thing that can survive in these environments are these animals that we don't want a lot of. But it's too, you know, for some of these environments where they've created these, um, what do you call it, uh, a vacuum. The thing that fills the vacuum is something undesirable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've scrambled a lot of things that would n- naturally occur, you know, within their own regions, within the, within their own biomes, and uh, where they've um, settled into, you know, they've, they fit the landscape, and we've scrambled all of that, so it's, it's really difficult to sort of catch up. Like you're saying, it's, it's now going to be, you know, it's just different. <laughs> yes. So it's just different. It's <laughs> just different, and um, uh, so I I had one person that I really liked. Uh, he explained, you know, the the elements of a of a home landscape, and he said, well, if you've got some way to take food scraps and compost them, if you operate your landscape like a a, a natural. Um, landscape. You don't do much maintenance. Mm-hmm. You leave, you know, leaves and sticks on the ground as habitat, breeding, and cover for things that need a, a year's timeline. Yeah, a little hidey hole for something. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, you're you grow a little food for yourself. You grow uh, a little food for the pollinators, and um, you've kind of got a complete 
system, mm -hmm. you know, that you really don't need a lot of machinery on it. Right. You don't have to blow your yard every every, every day, which, you know, you're, you're just 175 mile an hour wind to a little, you know, flying insect is kind of a death sentence. Yeah. So are string trimmers, so are mowers, you know, all these things are just lacerating, you know, machines that, right. that just wipe everything out. We don't think of the physical beatings that these little creatures take. Yeah. But if you ran a daycare center um, right on an airport runway, <laughs> that's just about what you're talking about, yeah. right? I mean, the assaults are phenomenal. And then it's the chemistry, and then it's, you know, heat. It's, you know, you don't have the cover and the protection. Right. Um, so all those things together, if we, if we can really focus on those things, if we can harvest water, if we can, you know, create fertile soil, um, even using gray water, things like that, yeah. we can grow an awful lot of stuff. And then if we plant the things that can actually grow in dust, and most of these natives know how to do it. They just go to sleep in the summer heat. They wake up in, you know, in the winter rains. And you've got these seasonal pulses. And we, you know, we just can't have Las Vegas year round, you know? Right. And this year was a real wake up call with a pipe that had to be, re you know, repaired from uh, Colorado River. Right. And a couple of weeks without watering, you know, anything outside, which, you know, our plants are already taking a beating and they're de already, you know, dependent on our uh, on our IV lines, you right, know, keeping yeah. them alive. So it was, you know, it, it's tough because you really do need these canopies in cities just to cool it down. We need to shrink asphalt. We need to, you know, stop thinking about the word growth, I think, is just so last century now. Well, all the stuff you're saying, I mean, I totally agree with you about it. But I also feel like most people just don't care. And there's places like, let's, just, let's say you have a business that has a massive parking lot. You'll, there's, a, there's a school I always bike by. has this massive expanse of blacktop. I keep thinking, like, what if you just drilled a couple holes in there every 10 feet just to let water in there or do something to allow it to be permeable so you don't have just this huge dead zone. Mm -hmm. But no one will ever do anything because there's... There has to be so much oversight for any type of thing done to anything, and people don't want to do it because they think like, okay, well, if we do this to this our parking lot of this of the of this store, then we, it takes more to maintain it. All this stuff just takes more money and more time, or at least so they think. And so people just aren't interested in it because it's, there's this, there's no short-term gain on it, and it feels like this constant losing game where you, I feel like I just have to. Ignore it because if you focus on it, you're just constantly going to be seeing people who are um, they just don't they just don't care at all, and so it's you come up against this wall constantly in terms of things like that, where it feels like nothing's going to change as far as that stuff goes until it has to change, and by then it's kind of going to be too late for them. I mean, it feels too late already, and to some extent, like the way. Certain places are just cutting down tons of huge trees because they they wreck the asphalt or something like for those for those reasons. I mean, it's complicated, but what I guess what I'm trying to say is it just feels very it's very frustrating to even think about it because there's so much opposition to it that I don't know how how you're supposed to think about it. What do you, how do you deal with that in terms of how you think about it? Yeah, well, I. I share all those all those sentiments, and right. uh, you know there are times when I just go down in the deep hole. And uh, but what always brings me back 
is facing the living, breathing world. And just, um, you know, there's a reverence there that I have for it. There, um, and it's, an, it's inspirational to me that life can, you know, spring forth if you just give it the right conditions. Mm-hmm. And so it's, um, you know, let's just say humans are gone. Within about, you know, 500 to 1,000 years, you'd hardly know yeah. that we were here. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's just a blip in, t- in geologic, you know, mm-hmm. geological time. Um, so it's always going to, regeneration is always going to happen. You know, we get in the way of it. We stop it is what we do. Um, it's kind of one of our biggest talents. But we can flip that. And people do get inspired by the better world, you know, and creating a better world. And, uh, you know, when I worked with tree people, I always felt like, you know, it was inspirational to work for an organization like that um, and just feel like, okay, we're doing some good here. We're doing some good work. I love what LA Compost is doing. You know, they're they're supporting community gardens and school gardens and, you know, just teaching people these simple cycles of nature, which are simple on the surface and, you know, just infinitely complex right. when you dig into them. And then uh, groups like um, Kiss the Ground, which have popularized a lot of these conversations around regenerative farming, soil health, Um, that kind of thing. They've used media to sort of its best talents and trained people to become speakers on these topics. And they've taken the expertise of others and packaged that in really great ways. And now they're looking at farm bills and how to get money to move in different ways, you know, kind of away from the, I'll just call it corporate farming world, um, where you can get paid not to grow things and yeah. you know have these sort of gentleman uh, farms that you know are just sort of the getaways for the rich and famous mm-hmm. and don't produce much of anything for people that need to eat, um, and instead you know get these funds into the hands of people that are really taking care of um, natural systems. And one of the things I love about going to um, a conference called EcoFarm is that. You can turn to people in the in the lunch line, you know, just all the, it's just amazing. You go, how, you know, how you doing? What are you up to? And they go, well, you know, we got some fish coming up the stream. We got raptors working in the sky. We got hedgerows buzzing with pollinators. We got the soil organic matter coming up. And we're growing some pretty good food, you know? And it's, right. it's just like, okay, you're the people that I want to buy my food from. You know, you're the people that I want to support, um, in agriculture because you are really integrating the you know the wild world and the world of food in the same place and i was always fascinated by uh people in you know we'll call it sort of aboriginal style you know lifestyles and they're living in you know very lush tropical jungle areas and they'll go okay you want to see my garden yeah i want to see your garden it looks like a jungle. Mm-hmm. What they've done is they've interplanted in the native trees. You know, here's a tree that we can climb to get to the fruit on this other tree. Okay. So we, you know, we, we're growing the ladder. We're growing the tree. These are the vines we planted that go up the tree. We can get the fruit from those. Right. Um, you know, so the whole thing just looks tangled with the wildlife. Mm-hmm. And to our Western eye, we don't see a border around it. We don't see a sidewalk next to it. We don't see a pathway for a truck. 
um, yeah. or a, you know, a road going to it or a big machine there that's going to harvest the stuff. What they see is this very intimate um, you know, entanglement and, and embracing of all worlds. Also, it helps in the food too. system. It's that thing where all, where you have plants growing together that are companions. Yeah. They help each other out, or you you have one plant that promotes the visitation of this certain predator bug that kills the aphids on this thing. Right. So, yeah, it's that it's that classic uh, companion planting of sorts, but it's like a, a more even a more natural version of companion planting. Yeah, and more and more now too, we're seeing how plants interact through the roots. Oh, right. That stuff's crazy. And uh, how these uh, fungal threads, you know, they're just like microscopic plumbing systems or extension cords in the soil. And the, f the fungal world can't produce its own food, um, unlike plants that, you know, put chlorophyll up toward the sun sunlight, create sugars, carbohydrates, and they'll pump, you know, quite a big percentage of those things out through their roots. And that creates a, a fertile zone around their roots where microbes thrive. Mm -hmm. So bacteria will live there. Bacteria can you know, uh, take atmospheric nitrogen that's filtering down through the soil and turn that into nitrates and nitrites, which is uh, you know, food source for the plant, whereas Atmospheric nitrogen is, is just bound up. It's inert. It doesn't react with anything. Okay. But these microbes have enzymes that actually crack this chemical code oh. and put it into a usable, active form. <clears throat> then the, the, uh, the, in the fungal world, um, fungi can either wrap themselves around the outside of roots. They can perforate roots. Um, there's terms like endo and ecto. Right. Um, endo, how, ecto, my, my cor, what is it? Mycorrhiza. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because there's four types of uh, fungus or three? I there's, guess. yeah, there's a few. Some of them just eat, you know, dead stuff. Some of them, you know, but they're, they're collecting food all over the mm -hmm. place. And in most of the microbial world, um, they're secreting enzymes outside of their body that soften all these tissues that are edible. And so it's just like our saliva in our mouth, only it's coming out of their skin or their cell wall. And so everything that's in contact with them is sort of dissolving into food that they can then absorb through their cell wall. Wow. So fungi can actually go into the mineral world and soften minerals, bring them back through their cellular structure. It's almost like a plumbing system and bring that back to the roots of plants. So they are like a supercharged extension cord wow. or circuit to a lot of these plants. Because they break it, they make something bioavailable that wasn't without Right, it. yeah. So if a, if a mineral is just inert in the soil mm -hmm. and it's not water soluble, for a, for a tree or a plant, everything has to be mixed in solution. Wow. So it can't be, you know, there's no mouth, there's no chewing mechanism, there's no gut. Mm -hmm. um, so all these, all these plants have to have it delivered right there at the roots. And the way that the plant does that is they, they create this, you know, this workforce down below of all these right. microbes that prepare the food so that it's water-soluble, excuse me, and ready to go through the roots. So this, now, this is like a, this is everywhere all the time when you have a healthy ecosystem in the ground. You have like, this relationship to the microbes 
the plant and the uh, fungi that's living there. So uh, just to go back to composting, so when you have when you have like compost, which when the when your final product is finished compost, what is in that that promotes that type of environment? Like what is what is compost exactly? What makes it? Oh what man! It is, exactly. Yeah, what is it? It's it's kind of a miracle. <laughs> I mean, you start out with all the plant materials that are just discarded, you know, either um, cyclically through the seasons or food scraps that were done with, you know, the peelings and bones and you know eggshells and odds and ends of uh, cores and trimmings, all that stuff, um, especially where there's where there's uh, chlorophyll. And uh, chlorophyll, you know, um, tissues like a leaf, like a leaf. Okay. All those leafy things are really high in nitrogen. So um, the first thing that that flushes through the compost pile are bacteria that can pick up the simple sugars that are really available. They're easily available. So all the soft plant tissue um, that has a lot of you know chlorophyll, green leafy things mm -hmm. especially. They're really quick to break down. Grass clippings um, are really quick to break down. Anything that um, a grazing animal would eat uh, is generally very fast to break down. Got it, okay. And in fact, you know, cows themselves or grazing animals themselves are great composters because they're doing it in a tube rather than in a pile. Yeah, because right? they have tons of bacteria in there, right? That's oh, great. God, yeah. That's why they fart so much because they're yeah. just the... Uh... Yeah, well, we do too. I mean, we have, uh, you know, our biome is just thousands and thousands of little microbes. And without those, we would not be able to digest a thing. Right. Okay. That's so interesting. So, I always forget that. Yeah. So, I mean, we have an internal compost pile, if you will. Uh -huh. And, you know, the, the forests and grasslands and chaparrales all have an external compost pile. Right. That's so interesting to think about that. And things can break down in a lot of different ways. I mean, sunlight is a great um, disintegrator, uh, ultraviolet light. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you leave leaves out in the sun alone, even without bacteria and, and without moisture, they'll break down just in ultraviolet light. Right. Uh, below the soil or in the darkness, um, it's all the microbes that take care of it, and especially once they get, once they have moisture, because all these things live in a little film of moisture. Because that's an exothermic reaction in compost? Exothermic, right? yeah, it means it gives off heat, and uh, the heat is... Um, comes from a, a few different processes. One of it's just metabolic heat of the microbes themselves and all the little critters. That's so funny. It's like a, it's like a gym. It's like uh, exactly just all these little critters that are moving so much that they're creating energy. That they're that the energy of movement creates the heat inside mm -hmm. there. Exactly. And then um, uh, the other parts of that are chemical, where you are just like you're saying exothermic you know in in chemistry you'll put chem chemicals together and you get heat mm -hmm. you know you get some reaction so there's there's that as well and like we were talking about uh, commercial composting uh, facilities if you put some if you just create a big pile of of leaves and grass and sticks and everything else it'll get incredibly hot it'll mm -hmm. it'll go up way over boiling temperatures really and uh you know it'll start to smolder and a lot of times it'll burst into flame yeah I've, if you I've get the right conditions ash in my compost pile a bunch of times yeah and the ash might be ash but it is more likely it's fungus oh really and that white and sort of powder yeah it? it's oh, it's actually know. the spores but the, it always happens when it gets really hot. So mm -hmm. does that mean the fungus is a, this is a certain type of fungus that likes the heat? It can handle the heat? 
You know, it, well, like I said, it could be it could be an ash like you know it could be an oxidation that's okay. happening at a really if you get it if you get it hot enough and dry enough like one sixty it can actually it. start smoldering. Okay, it wasn't. I've seen and I mean these things do burst into flames. I haven't had that. In my usually little home bucket. composting you know it's does not, not not that hot. Mine was like one thirty or so. Yeah, at its hottest. I remember seeing when I you know stirred it up and got the middle out. I see all this white particles. It looks kind of like ash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's probably not ash, is it? Because it's not... Where the leaves have been burn. really heated up and that sort of thing. Generally, I would guess it's it's more um, uh, the spores okay. of fungi and uh, you know bacteria, mm-hmm. actinomycetes, all those things that have been working in the pile. And the temperature might have just... You know, kind of burn them out, mm-hmm. and then they're just sort of cooked Got it. and dry. If especially if it gets dry and dusty, yeah, because you're pushing a lot of the moisture out. That's the other thing too, though. It, uh, with uh, these metabolic processes, a lot of it, um, a lot of times, moisture is actually generated. Really, it's almost like a tailpipe in a car. You see it dripping. Yeah. Uh, part of that is moisture coming down through the carburetor and going through the motor and out the tailpipe. But the other part of it is actually, um, it, it, you actually create some moisture just in the, in the process of burning. Oh, wow. So if you, in smoke, there's generally steam mm-hmm. with oh, it. Oh, God, okay. Um, so it's all part of that, you know, oxidation process. Um, so, but, but composting, you, you start following these trails and you just never find a simple trail. Right. Um, you get successions of, of trophic levels or feeding levels. So the first things that come in are the bacteria, fungi. You know, they, they feed on the most available nutrients. And then as the process goes on, you get a lot of uh, predators that come in, things that feed on the bacteria, things that feed on the fungi, actinomycetes, things like that that feed on that. So what are these? These are just so these larger are like, bacteria? Yeah, these are like uh, little beetles, rotifera, springtails, um, Spring mites, okay. um, all those kinds of things that feed. You know, we eat a lot of, uh, we eat a lot of things that are driven by bacteria. You know, if you go into your breads, you've got mm-hmm. yeast. If you go into vinegar, wine, beer, all of those are, you know, yeasts. If you go into cheeses and yogurts and, you know, fermented foods, it's kimchi. Yeah, it's all bacteria. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times these are, these are raising su- certain nutrient levels. So you're getting, you know, a lot of B vitamins out of those right. things. Um, and so the, the pile goes through this whole succession of feeding. Um, and the last things to come out the end are kind of like the worms, the uh, bigger beetles, the things that eat the smaller insects, um, more of the predators, and then you get the birds feeding on it, all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, compost is just a whole succession of, of, of uh, you know, cafeteria lines. So is no compost <clears throat> ever really the same? Is it all, is your end product always gonna be slightly different I'd say within a range, it's all slightly different. But if you start out, excuse me, if you start out with, um, you know, just one type of manure, for instance, you'll get something that's probably, you know, if you steer manure is always high in salts. 
Right. And it's so cheap, huh? Yeah, <laughs> if you you know if you if you mix manure with um, you know the the solid manure with uh, urine, you get more salts because okay. uh, salts come out of the kidneys and you know they're yeah in the liquids. Um, and you get more you know bacteria in the in the solids. Um, if you put in more leaves and sticks and things like that, the salts go down, um, and you might have a little more of a fungally dominated compost. So it's all about what you put in is what you get out. Yeah, to a certain degree, but it all kind of in the end, it all comes out very similar in some ways. Is it all the same around the same pH too? Usually, the pH goes up. The pH goes up um, in the initial stages because the enzymes are primarily acidic. Got it. As the, as the enzymes and all these microbes that have been feeding on it, as they die out, the acidity goes down, and it usually comes out pretty close to neutral. So is, does that mean the compost, does, what is the difference between compost and soil? Like what makes soil soil? What makes compost? Yeah. Compost? Okay. Well, soil I think of as um, as the complex of kind of naturally occurring minerals and organic matter. Okay. So soil is kind of the sum total of your natural weathered rock that's that's formed soils, and the roots, the microbiology, um, and the humus that's all mixed together in that, you know, in that soil. Mm -hmm. Compost is, you know, first it's a verb because you're, you're basically breaking down these materials. The finished part of compost that seems most valuable are the humic acids. Got and, um, you know, this stuff we called humus, which is this dark chocolate brown, you know, yeah. almost black material. It's somewhat sticky. It's, uh, you know, almost colloidal. If it goes through the gut of a worm, especially, it gets real clay-like. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really good at holding moisture. It also forms soil structure. And it, it sounds counterintuitive, counter but soil you want soil to be held together in little clumps that create air spaces. Right, okay. And it also, it, it's like granola chunks, if you were looking at it okay. in a microscope where you know your your milk or whatever you put on your granola you know your oat milk or <laughs> whatever it is goes through it it's not like oatmeal that gets you know sticky and sticks together that would yeah. be more like clay but you want openings in your soil that can breathe because you want air in your soil you want water to penetrate and uh, organic matter just fixes every soil there is. And when I say fix, I should say improves. Got it. Especially for, you know, farming or for gardening. Uh, wild soils, you know, they're usually matched to the plants that, you know, are used to that area and that soil. So everything has had time to find equilibrium. In all of our systems that are human touch, nothing's in, you know, very little is in equilibrium. So we're always looking for this supercharged soil that will make plants just jump out of the ground and, you know, they'll have this beautiful green glow and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, this soil and comp compost is like the additive to your existing soil, whatever that is. If you go into the Midwest and you look at these farming soils that, you know, were once wild grazing, you know, grasslands. 
those probably have anywhere from, you know, two to four percent carbon. Okay. And probably before we started tilling them, they were a lot better than that. Right. But organic farmers, you know, if 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 they really work on their soils, they can get these things up to like six, eight, and maybe in some cases ten percent carbon. And for every percent of carbon that you increase in your soil, you can hold about, I think it's about 20,000 gallons per acre, which means about not quite two quarts per square foot. For every 1% carbon that you increase, about two quarts per square foot of water can be held. And that water isn't just like available water necessarily. What it is, it's in the roots, it's in all these little microscopic little pinprick bubbles that are like little mm -hmm. baggies of moisture. Wow. And they're in all the little fungal threads, um, all the colonies of bacteria. All of those things are wet life forms. But they're going through such quick, um, you know, life terms or cycles that they're constantly releasing water or absorbing it. Wow. But it it creates this effect of water availability to the plants. It's amazing. And so um, if you increase that carbon in the soil, you're also increasing kind of, just call it the charged battery effect, where you've got a longer glide time between waterings. You've got a longer season after the rains where plants can grow. Okay. You know, here in Southern California, you should be able to get almost you know, into June before you have to turn on an irrigation system if you have your soils that aren't um, disturbed. Mm -hmm. You got a lot of roots in them, you got a lot of organic matter, you're mulching on top, all those things. A lot of times you'll make it in well into May or even June before you need to irrigate again. Amazing. Yeah. Let me, pa let me pause real quick here. Because that, wait, all that stuff you're saying right now, it makes, I guess I didn't, now I understand the importance of having all this organic matter, I didn't realize it was such a, uh, like a thing where you're, you're basically creating a, a living soil is the idea. When you, have, when you add compost to soil, it creates this living environment. So it helps, every, everything is helped by the addition of those, those carbon, all the carbon and all the, um, all the living uh, microbes and stuff. I guess what, I, what I'm wondering about though, is at some point, is there, <clears throat> you have too much of that because I know at one point I had a garden years ago where I had a problem with grubs because there was so, I had so much organic matter in the soil that it was almost like uh, there needs to be more mineral minerals in the soil because it wasn't because the grubs were in there and they were they were um, like eating the roots and stuff like how does it work is there like a point where you have too much organic matter and too much carbon in there? <laughs> well, this is you know this is the the part about farming that, you know, it's kind of like you'll be the best farmer you're ever going to be about 10 seconds before you die. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that and, before. And, uh, um, you know, every year is going to be different. Every yeah. year is going to be another infestation. Every year is going to be, you know, the freeze that was never expected or okay. the heat blast that was never expected or, you know, something's going to come up. And so there's no hard and steadfast rules about any of this. It's all a wild circus. And, um, you know, I, I, 
I respect some people that just have, you know, they have enough seasons of observation and very careful analysis where they're, they've really seemed to, you know, not that they're never going to get a surprise because they always do, but they just seem to be so tuned in. Like we think, you know, I kind of grew up in a four season area and I always describe my life, you know, as four season, you know, Mm -hmm. but they really describe seasons as like, no, there's about 80 seasons. Okay. Right. Yeah. And it's just like we were saying, you go over that winter solstice and all of a sudden the buds start to swell Mm -hmm. and they're watching every little action like that. And they hit it with, you know, um, biodynamic sprays, herbal, you know, herbal potions, whatever it is to, you know, because these insects are watching the same time clock Mm -hmm. and they don't have a, you know, they don't have a calendar on the wall. They're just watching whatever appears. And, and, you know, if the temperature goes up, you know, now's the time, you know, go lay the eggs, go start crawling around, go start nibbling on those buds or, you know, here's where the fungus comes in or the bacteria or something. So, um, you know, this, this sensitivity to the, you know, to the world is just, it's endless. It's just absolutely endless. Because everything's you, changing all the time. And so it's, it's, it's like everything that's alive in the environment is an opportunist. So it's, if something changes, then it changes what it does. So if something's mm-hmm. available to eat, it's going to eat it, regardless whether or not, oh, it's not supposed to be this hot this time of year, or it's not supposed to be this cold this time of year. The plants and the animals don't really care because they're just going to do what they do because they they're gonna do the best they can with the, what they what they've been given. Yeah. So everything changes. There's no like, uh, you can't be regimented about your thinking in terms of that because the the plants and animals aren't as well. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we're trying to outsmart <laughs> millions of little minds, you mm-hmm. know, out there that that know how to respond to this stuff. Years ago, I read something, uh, a book called Microcosmos. Okay, I remember that book. You remember that one? Yeah. Okay, so... They made um, a movie out of it, too, I think. Did, yeah, they might have. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the basic premise of this thing was it was almost like a genetic swap meet in the soil. And um, depending on the conditions, you know, the food, the temperature, all those things, you know, the water availability, um, whatever it was genetics would be turned on and off in, really? this, in this microbial world. Wow. Yeah. And um, it, was, it was almost like um, there are so many different triggers. So it's like if you, add, you know, if you add something to your soil, you might throw the balance of the pH or something in a different direction, and a whole set of new things come in or right. new issues, right? And I studied with a guy named John Todd. He, he coined this term living machines. And his expertise was in water and remediating water that came out of, you know, it was kind of high-density wastewater from uh, food processors, breweries, chocolate factories, that kind of thing. And he would take these ecologies and put them into water tanks. Okay. So first... It, it often started with anaerobic bacteria, just like a cesspool or, you know, septic tank. They would bring that 
uh, and just bubble air into it. And you know, the same, some of these same processes are used in water treatment in cities and municipalities. Because anaerobic is generally, that's sort of like sludge, that's, that's like... It's the really stinky stuff. It's the stuff. nasty stuff, yeah. Yeah, there's no oxygen. So it's just like, you know, you're putting a plastic bag and left to rot. Mm -hmm. That's, you know... Anaerobic means no oxygen, right? Yes. Okay. So then they would bubble it up and it became aerobic. Right. And you get a whole different bloom of microbes living in that solution. But every time you, you change the ecology, you change the, the microbial you know, uh, set mm -hmm. that lives in those conditions, and they would each take you know, the nutrients, uh, you know, their preferred nutrients out of that solution. So he would run it through all these tanks. So it would be... Um, it, it would be like algae, uh, algae and bacteria. Then it would be filter feeders, you know, the snails, the, the mm -hmm. uh, clams, the uh, crayfish, the, f you know, the fish that filter feed. Then it might go through root systems where they'd have just roots matted in these, in these tanks. <laughs> then it might be um, uh, crushed minerals, you know, limestone, okay. something like that. Um, and he would sometimes put, you know, 10, 20 tanks in succession. So this water was running through it and they would adjust flow rates and things like that to, you know, give it time to settle and digest mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. And after they started experimenting with this uh, for a long time, they found that there were always sludges in the bottom tanks in the last ones. There right. was something left there that hadn't been digested, or it was even produced during the process. And what they found was if they took lines and gave it feedback up to the headwaters, they took the sludges and put them in the headwaters, the biology would change, and it would adjust to take care of that. Wow. So it learned. It learned to, to eat that leftover. Like it learned to, yeah, it learned, and whatever it was that, that was needed to take care of that would start growing. Wow. They also found that these systems went to sleep if they became monolithic, if the, if the flow rate was the same all the time. Wow. Or seasonally, certain things would die out and go to sleep. And so they had to keep banging the kind of the, the sides of the tank to wake it up. The flow rate, that's crazy, though, that, that we go to sleep from, from that. That's so interesting. Well, it was one of the factors that they, they kept changing, and um, it probably gives you know, certain things time to build up in a tank yeah. or you know, whatever. But they would, um, to shift the conditions and keep these things alive, they would go to creeks and ponds and scoop up water. Mm -hmm. They would scoop up you know, sediments from the bottoms of ponds and creeks and uh, spike the tanks with those. God. They would um, you know, change the flow rate. They would uh, cut the f sunlight out. They would drop the temperature, raise the temperature, uh, increase the airflow across the tops of the tanks, all these kinds of things, just to keep um, a diverse collection of things in these tanks alive. Wow. Because if, if it became monolithic, you got a, a, a very narrow band of microbes living in these, in these tanks. And then if anything changed in your flow, like so let's say there was a, uh, a cannery and you know, they did beans one month and they did corn the next. It's a different output. 
it's a different output and different you know proportion of nutrients and everything and if they weren't kind of ready for that transition mm -hmm. then they wouldn't be able to handle it wow so they had to keep this wide diversity of you know things going and there's a school in ohio it's called um i think it's an antioch school and they built a living machine there that um that was running on the on the bathroom stalls right. of human waste. So it went through, you know, anaerobic through a septic first, and they bubbled it up with air, and then they brought it up through all these tanks, and it was in a greenhouse and so on. And what happened was they, you know, after they had it in there a while, they realized that during spring break, mm -hmm. the nutrients just dropped to zero. Because there wasn't <laughs> any input. Yeah, no one was there wow. on campus. So they started paying people to use the toilets in that building. <laughs> So you got a quarter every time you took a dump in the, Jeez. you know, something like that. And then during the summer, they had to do the same thing. Like they just needed to, you know, and then in the fall, they had to kind of, you know, bounce it up again so that it was ready to go. So what was the output of that system? Was it clean water? It wasn't, you know, it wasn't pure water that you could put back in the faucet or mm -hmm. anything like that. But it was more like a, it would be more like a reclaimed water that, okay. you, that you would water, you know, it went to irrigation mm -hmm. basically. And you keep these, you, know, you keep water like this underground. You don't put it into the air. You don't put it on the surface. Okay. Because if anything ever does go wrong and you're just spreading bacteria all over the place, you know, that's, that's not a good thing at all. That's so interesting. That's crazy. But, you know, the, um, the same thing is kind of true in the soil. What we're, you know, what they're doing in all these tanks is what happens in a wetlands. Mm -hmm. You have this slow meandering current that goes through, it's filtered through all these reeds and grasses and, you know, soils and things like that in these wetlands or in deltas. Right. Um, that's, you know, that was kind of the natural settling point for and um, up in the Sacramento Delta, I toured up there some years ago with Metropolitan Water District. And, you know, after the railroads were built, a lot of Chinese families moved into the Delta to do farming. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it was also kind of a cultural getaway, maybe, because they'd probably been treated pretty badly on a lot of these, right. you know, work programs. Um, but the farms there were incredibly successful. That's because of the runoff. Yeah, and the soils, believe it or not, were like close to 80% organic matter. Wow. And it was because of all these sediments, you know, all the little crumb, leaf crumbs and organic, mm -hmm. you know, little dusty particles would settle in these reeds. The reeds act like baleen, you know, it just, mm -hmm. everything drops there because the flow rate is so slow. And so these soils built up over, you know, thousands of years. Well, when we toured uh, just a few years back, um, the bus that we were on stopped on one of these big levees. And the levees are just huge soil embankments. There's nothing to them, really, uh, other than a road on the top and a bunch of dirt. And they leak like crazy. So on one side of the bus, they said, OK, if you look over there, that's seawater from the bay. If you look over here, there's a farm. And it was 30 feet below wow. sea level because the soil had sunk that far and the and the way that it it disintegrated so fast and and just disappeared was because that 80% organic matter was plowed and dosed with nitrogen over years and years of time mm -hmm. and the two things caused the bacteria to bloom and eat all the organic matter in the oh soil my God. 
So, you know, the nitrates just feed the bacteria. And then when you run a plow through everything, you chop up all of the, the fungal fibers, the roots, mm-hmm. all that stuff. So it's just ready to get oxidized and blown into wow. the atmosphere. So all the carbon that was sequestered in those uh, delta soils is in the atmosphere. Because it got, it got eaten up. It was totally eaten. Like in the, the course of yeah, and this is happening years. all over in farmland. Because that's the thing. Because the, the it takes thousands of years for it to accumulate. But once you start farming on it, if you don't replenish, if you don't put the inputs back in, it'll go away. It'll just the soil level will just drop because the farming, the type of farming you're doing, just takes it out yeah. much faster than it can be put back in. Unless you're doing a really specialized type of regenerative farming. Is that right? Right, right. And, Interesting. And now, you know, there's all the, a lot, a lot of talk about no-till farming. Yeah. And tilling, we're finding, is just destroying all the soil structure. We don't think of soil structure other than to be, you know, we want our gardens to be light and fluffy mm-hmm. so that roots can just, you know, flash through it. Um, but what's happening in these, you know, these commercial soils is these big, heavy, you know, plows are just disking all the carbon into the sky. I mean, oh, it's, really? Okay. And so we are—we've been mm-hmm. losing carbon content in in farming soils. You add a lot of salts when you add commercial uh, fertilizers because mm-hmm. a lot of those are salt-based, and so you're getting this collapse of soils that used to be kind of light and fluffy on their own. You know, right. they were high in 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 all these carbon materials. And so now they're just minerals, you know, and they get really crusty because of the salts. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that happens in the southwest states where we have a high evapotranspiration rate is water evaporates through the surface of the soil and all the salts are left behind on the surface. You see that white crust. Yeah. Like bad soil, yeah. Yeah, you'll see it Mm -hmm. on your your terracotta pots on the outside. You'll see it. Any little clump of dirt that's left out to dry, if you, you know, let's just say you go through and you hoe your garden and you've left all these clumps on top. If you just let that soil dry out, the moisture will be wicked up from the mm-hmm. from below. And every little tip of, you know, granola crunch on the top, that the very tip of it is going to be like the tip of the candle where those salts are going to accumulate. Wow. And when those salts are up near the surface, all the feeding roots, it becomes a, um, what do you want to say? Uh, it's, it's a, when water goes through a membrane, it's an osmotic um, process. What does that mean exactly? Osmotic means it's, it, it, it's sort of a, it's sort of a skin where water can go through it Okay, some stuff can't, but water can. So roots, Osmosis. yeah, let's just say the skin of the roots um, will absorb water until the salt builds up, and then you have these different pressures. Oh. So that the, the pressure is not, it's not allowing the water to go into the root. We're getting into physical science here, right? This is Because this yeah. is about surface water surface tension and also yeah. about permeability yes. to different materials. Thank you. yes. That stuff's it's for complicated stuff. It's complicated. That's hard science. But this is happening in all the southwest states where they've been really? farming for a number of years. Um, get, they get salt buildups. If you go into the Coachella Valley, for instance, where they're growing a lot of winter vegetables, mm-hmm. 
they have to flush because those, those soils, desert soils are notorious to have a lot of salt in them anyway because you just don't have a lot of rain to wash it out. Right. In the, uh, if you go into rainforests, um, there's not much in that soil. The, the actual nutrients are on top of the soil in the vegetative mix. Yeah, there's, mix. No, there's nothing deep in there. Everything else is just kind of washed through. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you can do this at home, too. If you overwater, you'll just wash all your nutrients through the soil. Right. So, um, but in these, in these dry climates where you evaporate so much water, you build up soils, and then you got to flush those out. So in the Coachella Valley, for instance, they they literally have to flush their soils, you know, annually, maybe every couple of years. It just depends on how much they're going through. To basically get that salt membrane off the roots? Right, right. Wow, because it's and like it builds up and it protects, it keeps the roots from being able to... to yeah. taking water. Yeah, your plants start to starve to death oh, wow. because not only do they not get the water, but they don't get the nutrients that are dissolved in water. So they're starving twice. I mean, yeah. they're dehydrating and they're not getting the nutrients. That's so weird. I've never heard of that before. Man. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, in the southern, in the southwest states where we have these really dry areas and we're trying to irrigate all this, you know, all these crops, um, we're just having all sorts of problems. Yeah. We don't build a lot of organic matter because we don't have the rain for it. Mm-hmm. So um, there, there are ways you can use um, just mineral um, mulches. So I have, uh, I know some people that grow grapes and olives up in the Cayuma Valley, which is just east of Santa Barbara. Okay. It's right in that Santa Barbara's um, Kern County area. Right. Where they meet. Um and what they do is they, in the wintertime, they get about, I don't know, I think it's about 10 inches of rain on average there. It's a little bit less than we get in, in Burbank here. Um, they'll throw in some cover crop seed. They'll let that come up. They don't get a huge crop of it because it's wintertime. It's like and alfalfa or something like that? Yeah, it's usually vetch, you know, something that fixes some nitrogen, pulls mm-hmm. up some nutrients, you know, brings them closer to the surface. Um and then as soon as the temperature goes up and it looks like the soil is going to start drying out, they uh, till that in and they just till about an inch and a half mm-hmm. and they create uh, what they just what they call a dust mulch. And it's just like a, a fluffy cotton candy, you know, till on top. It's all that vetch been ground. They grind it up into the soil. Basically. Yeah, basically. I think they might even mow it first and then they okay. till it. Um, there's different ways to do it. But... Um, you know, I, I, they were explaining this to me, and I went, really? Does that really work? And I, I said, really? And he took, he took his arm, and he just swept away this, you know, inch, inch and a half of soil, and it was damp right below it. Wow. And everything on top just looked like dust. He said, yeah, if we get a perfect year, we'll get like a quarter of an inch of rain on top of that dust. It creates a crust so it doesn't blow, oh, cool. and that seals it even better. That's so interesting. So you create different densities, and the mm-hmm. water stops. So um, there are things like that. Where they live, they just, you know, they're so far away from any vegetative, you know, mulching programs Mm -hmm. where you'd have, you know, grass and leaves and wood chips. It would be so expensive to bring anything like that in. And also they've got sort of an ecology that isn't contaminated with a lot of those things that you'd Mm -hmm. find in urban areas. Because we export an awful lot of pests and fungi and everything else. And right. If you don't boil that out and heat it in a, in a big composting program, 
um, you can spread an awful lot of bad stuff yeah. just through composting programs. So what should people be uh, thinking about now in the winter here? Because a lot of people can't garden where they're listening in terms of like what as far as like, like finishing up in terms of like uh, yeah. composting. Sure. Is there something that people can um, read about or get into as far as that stuff goes? There's such great information out there. I mean, if you go on to, you know, you go online, just look up any topic about composting, mulching. I mean, there's so much out there now. And all the big agencies are really starting to shift the way that we're looking at water and landscapes. Okay. So we have um, water efficient landscape ordinances, WELO, W-E-L-O. Mm -hmm. And basically to build anything new or to, you know, oftentimes even, I don't know if you have to do it when you remodel, but there are certain trigger points in construction projects where you have to show that your landscape is going to use a lot less water. Okay. So it's efficient irrigation, it's, you know, reducing turf, it's mulching, it's amending soils, and it's, you know, capturing rainwater. All those things together, and you start to make some, you know, some real difference. And then, so all of this information is online. I mean, there's just mm -hmm. tons of stuff you can go to. Um, I... I learned an awful lot about permaculture and the and which started with Aboriginal um, uh, agricultural techniques out of Australia and all over the world. And these are things that have been around for thousands of years. This is nothing new. We just kind of turned our back on it for a couple centuries. Mm -hmm. But really, it's so effective and it works so well. It's just the things that we've been talking about: getting more organic matter in the soil, mulching, growing plants close together choosing plants that can that can live in heat. Uh, Gary Nabham is one of my heroes. He's down in Tucson, Arizona. He's a, uh, a professor. He's done work with the museum there. He's really an ethnobotanist looking at all the traditional uses of plants and food mm -hmm. plants. And he's, uh, he's written a lot about tepary beans, tepary beans, which are kind of like a pinto. But they can live in, in soil temperatures of like, you know, 160 degrees on wow. the surface. And they just turn their leaves, you know, to kind of um, move away from the midday sun. But then they, uh, they turn toward the early sun in the morning mm -hmm. and the late sun in the afternoon. And they thrive in just hot, dry temperatures. It's amazing. You know, so there are actually a lot of food plants that came out of the southwest you know, Hopi corns that are very short in their, you know, their height of the plant is very short, but the depth of the root is very deep. And so those were planted in the washes when the seasonal rains came and uh, the plants would just chase the water table going down. Nice. And, you know, be able to make it through the fruiting season and provide, you know, uh, provide food. Um, and then, you know, these little techniques like uh, wa following the water from your roof through your yard. You know, if we all had a little map showing where our downspouts were, mm -hmm. thousands of gallons. You know, in Burbank, let's just say you have a 6,000-square-foot lot, typical lot, you know, five, 6,000 square feet. There's something like, you know, in a, t in a typical year, um, let's see, 636. So if we get 10 inches of rain... That's, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40,000 gallons yeah. that are hitting that lot. And your, your lot is only, 
you know, it's probably half of it is built out with driveways, garages, patios, and house. That means, really, if you're getting, say, 10 inches of rain a year, you can, you, if you direct that correctly, you're probably doubling the amount of rain that goes into your garden mm -hmm. areas and your landscape areas if you have everything running into those areas. And you can collect it. You can uh, direct it toward the plants. Or you, you can store can it in the it. soil. You, right. you, if you get big enough cisterns, you can, you, know, you can get into the dry season. But it's really expensive to buy cisterns and rain barrels and all those kinds of things. And they take up a lot of space. It's better, to, like you're saying, to save it and save the water in the soil. Save the water in the soil, mm -hmm. do your mulching, crowd your plants, get canopies to protect them. Mm -hmm. um, all those kinds of things are really going to help you grow things. And you can grow food other than the rats that will eat it and the squirrels will eat it. Right. But, um, <laughs> um, but you know, and then uh, those things that aren't edible that, um, you know, are in your yard, go toward the natives because you're going to be supporting the birds, the pollinators, all those things. And look for things that really attract pollinators. You can also look for plants that are nitrogen fixers. Um, one of my favorites is Ceanothus. It's a beautiful, okay. you know, dark green native. Uh, they yeah. come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Great Some purple of them flowers. crawl on the ground. They have these beautiful electric blue-purple flowers. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they bloom, insects just love them. Yeah. Things like that. And you're also building, uh, you're, you're raising the nitrogen level in the soil because right. they act in that way. Um, so you can combine these things. Uh, the foods that grow in dust are things like loquats, grapes, um, olives, pomegranates. All those things take very little water and will produce food for you um, with almost no tending. Especially, I mean, grapes can put down roots. You know, if they're around for decades, They'll put roots down like 50 to 100 feet. Wow, that's crazy. They have incredibly deep roots. Amazing. And they're long-lived. So if yeah. you plant a grape, you know, if it doesn't get wiped out by a disease or something, um, it can go a long time. And uh, this year I had a bumper crop, and I think it's because my grape was planted next to a, a cassia, which is also a nitrogen fixer. Mm -hmm. And the thing just went nuts. I had an amazing crop this year. Um, so, you know, sometimes these things do take years to mm -hmm. mature. So the best time to plant this thing was 10 years ago, but, you know. Yeah, you got to plan backwards. Don't let that stop you. <laughs> don't look in the rearview mirror. Look forward. Well, thanks and, for telling me all this stuff, Craig. I really yeah. appreciate it. And um, I really, uh, we have to do like a part two with like a garden tour or something like that. That'd be awesome. Thanks. It was great yeah. talking to you. Great talking to you. Enjoy. Bye.